Well, Luke is a historian and he does things very precisely. He started with the birth story. Uh, then he gives us a genealogy that differs from the genealogy in Matthew. And we'll deal with that one day, but not today. And then he introduces us to John the Baptist and then to this rather startling story. Jesus has left the carpenter shop, the stonemason shop, whichever way you want to read that word. He's about 30 years old. Among the Jews, when a man turned 30, he was considered independent of his father's rule. Now you were never really free, coherent, and a real social structure that, that bounds you throughout life. But at 30, you could make your own decisions. You could take a wife. You could, you could move if that's what you wanted to do or enter a different profession. So he's left this now. He's left dad. We don't know if Joseph is alive or dead at this stage. He disappears from the record when Jesus is about 12. Now Jesus has said, I, I live for my father. He did that when he was age 12, serving his heavenly father. So what's this going to look like? Now let's step aside from that because we're going to get right back to it. But we need to plant a seed, a seed of an idea, a thought, or a series of questions. Why did Jesus set up the church? Well, I know there are some Protestant churches that teach that the church is kind of a half measure, that Jesus was, was coming to earth to set up an earthly kingdom, he was surprised by the resistance, and so God has brought in the church to be here until Jesus can come back and truly have his kingdom. That's a very minority view, and we're not going to spend any time on it because it, it has nothing in Scripture to back it up. So why did Jesus establish the church? What is the purpose of church, of us going to church, or us being church? <clears throat> now, we insist correctly so that church does not refer to a building full of brick or wood and stone but that church always refers to a people it does ecclesia most of us know from bible classes that word means those called out but we may not be aware of how that word was used in the time of jesus and before and for a long time after if there was a decision that needed to be made for the community, for the family, or for the city, you would bring out the top-ranking individuals, and they would be in a meeting and make that decision. That gathering of those individuals was called the ecclesia. For example, when there was a riot in Ephesus against Paul uh, because he was taking away Diana of the Ephesians, power, reputation, and therefore ruining the business of people who sold souvenirs to travelers. The people, the head of the, um, the city of, of Ephesus, those all, those guys came together, and they were all guys back in those days. That was called an ecclesia. It's not translated that way, but that's what the word means. In truth, we only have the word church stuck in there because King James insisted it get put there. It used to be when they first translated, the translators hand handed their document to King James. Uh, it said congregation or gathering. But by this time, uh, 1611, they had already had established churches 
that had rules that you had to come to a particular place. So instead of putting congregation, synagogue, gathering, uh, he insisted that they put the word church, which by then meant chapel or a place, a physical place. So you may or may not have wanted to know that, but why did Jesus set up the church, his people? And then we also asked the secondary question, why did they build buildings? But we'll get more to that in just a bit. Why are we so keen on getting people into the church? Why are we so keen on gathering together as the church? Well, we're going to be told exactly why we do this. But later. That's later in the story. So, one last thing. If God did create us to be a people, a gathering, when did we turn to be a people who build our buildings and then 95% of our time, our money, and our arguments are about the building and what happens within it two hours a week? Truly, <clears throat> Christians have been fighting over what happens in an enclosed area for an hour or two a week to the point of drawing blood, separating families, stomping out and starting their new group that will then fight over what to do during an hour or two on a Sunday. Is that what Jesus came to do? The story will tell us. Jesus is led in the, into the desert to be tempted. The devil is there. He's not given the proper name in Luke. We generally call him Satan. But um, what, what is calling the devil? Since that's what Luke calls him. Jesus knows the devil. The devil knows Jesus. They're well acquainted. All the way back to the book of Job, the devil, that time he is called Satan, is moving about the counsel of God, bringing accusations against Job and trying to convince God the Father that we are not worth the, the trouble of loving us, caring for us, that we will never love him in return. So Jesus has known this fellow, this being, for a very long time. He was there at the creation of the angels. He was there in the council of God. <clears throat> They'd met. The devil first starts with the same tact he used on Adam and Eve. Did you ever notice that? When you look down here, Jesus had not eaten anything for 40 days. Let's talk about that, shall we? Whenever the Bible talks about 40 days, seven days, uses the word a thousand, we have to understand that they did not mean these as precise, discrete units of time. That this is the way they talked. Two things. One, <clears throat> when you fasted, you only fasted during daylight hours. You ate and drank in the evening. The Muslim people that you know during Ramadan do the same thing. They will not even chew gum during the day. They will not take a drink of water during the day. But as soon as sunset hits, they can eat and drink and refresh themselves. But that doesn't mean Jesus even did that for 40 days. 40 just means the correct assigned period of time. So Jesus is out there. By the end of it, the scripture says very bluntly, he was hungry. So the devil comes to him and says, if you're, if you're hungry, make bread. You, you can do that. You remember, they know each other. You, you can do that. Just make these stones into bread. If you might 
if you haven't really studied the parallels in the stories, you might have missed this. With Adam and Eve, he'd already convinced them, this fruit looks pretty good. And God's holding out on you because there is something that you need. We were created to eat. We, we are created to need food. And so it's not like sinning. In fact, when I was a boy, that really bothered me because the teachers would talk about how brave Jesus was for not turning it into bread. And I kept thinking, there's no sin in turning it into bread. And it doesn't just mean bread, by the way. The word is generic for food. Why not make some fruit salad and bread and some cheese and falafel or something there? You're hungry. There's no sin in it. You are the son of God. You are a creating being. Well, what I had not quite understood yet is what the devil was saying. He wasn't saying, you're hungry. Why don't you take care of that? He was saying, you're hungry. You're going to have to take care of that. Because God the Father has not supplied food for you. You were driven out here. God's holding back from you what he could easily give. Exactly what he said to Adam and Eve. Are you allowed to eat anything here? Everything you want? Oh, not that tree. Well, he's holding out on you because if you eat that tree, you get to make your own, eat of that tree, you get to make your own decisions about what's right, what's wrong. You know, you become actually like God. You won't need him anymore. Here Jesus is learning to be human, learning to deal with who he is. In Philippians chapter 2, it seems to indicate that was a struggle, but he did it willingly. And now he's got to figure out, do I just move and take care of myself? Or do I trust that God, the Father, will take care of me even in this sack of fluid and bones in which I find myself entrapped? Well, Jesus has the right to eat. Why not? But Jesus instead just quotes scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone. In other words, you know, I'm going to need more than bread. And God's going to supply what I need. He just quoted scripture. Later on, by the way, Jesus will say anything that I ever say. I say it because God gave me those words and the Holy Spirit gave me those words. He, will, he would go further and say, I do not speak on my own. I do not speak from myself. I speak from him. He was practicing here, quoting scripture. And by the way, you can't quote scripture unless it's already in you. So make sure you read some. And memorizing scripture is not a bad idea. You don't have to memorize the whole book. But there, memorize the passages you're going to need. And you know one of these days you're going to need it. So you have those in there. Moving on. We need more than food, but understand something. We don't live with a scarcity mindset when it comes to food most of the time. Most of the time, most people who are watching this had enough to eat yesterday and are pretty sure they're gonna have enough to eat today. This is now going out to, I just found out last night, our 18th country. Some of those are developing countries and people can be hungry. The scarcity mindset was full-blown when Jesus was on the earth because things were scarce. We have a scarcity mindset because we're so used to our abundance. You know, better eat this now. Let's go grab this now. And 
we don't need that. We have God. He will take care of us. We don't assume that a lack of food right now will mean we'll never get food. But in Jesus' day, that was an assumption one could make. It's an act of faith to say, I'm going to wait until God takes care of me. Now, that was not putting God to the test. We're going to find out later. So don't you sit around and say, well, I'm not going to pay my bills until God floats money in the door. And I'm not going to eat any food until he floats the food in. No, no, that's not how this works. Jesus is saying, I'm here for a reason. I'm here to be tempted. But I'm not going to follow through with the temptation. I'm going to wait for God. Wait for the Spirit. Well, then the devil offers Jesus everything. All the kingdoms, <coughs> all the power. All he has to do is worship the devil. Because the devil is still in this big argument with God about how we're not worth it. And he has seized control on earth more than once. He seized control. There was the flood for that big reset. But he seized control very shortly after. In fact, Jesus would call him the prince of this world. So the devil saying, I can give it to you. What do you want? Power, territory, people. I can give that to you. Just like this. By the way, uh, Jesus didn't say, oh, no, you can't, because he could have. Jesus instead just quotes scripture. Worship the Lord your God, and him only shalt thou serve, in the beautiful phrasing of the King James Version. Well, the devil is, is still trying. You, you still believe all this promises? Have you looked around? You're a hungry guy from a minor tribe, from a minor family nation, you are in a place where nobody ever gets to travel more than a few miles from where they're born. You have no internet, you have no network. Nobody knows who you are, nobody cares who you are, and I'm offering you the entire planet. You think you're gonna do this on your own? Jesus was willing to wait for God. So the devil wants to breed a distrust in Jesus, um, in Jesus's view of God, all right? So he said, tell you what, you know how to get a lot of believers? Show them God's power. So what we gotta do? Let me take you up to the pinnacle of the temple and throw yourself off. Because the Bible says, you see the devil can quote, quote scripture too, that he will give his angels charge concerning thee that you, thou shalt not dash thy foot upon a stone. I don't know why this story just sounds better in King James E's, but it kind of does. Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's Deuteronomy 6, 16. I love Deuteronomy 6. One of my favorite passages. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now we see this and we can get a little antsy about it because we, we can say, what about Gideon? Because Gideon laid out a fleece. And we'll say, well, we're not testing God, we're just fleecing. We're just, uh, and by the way, that's where fleecing became a term. Uh, now, Gideon didn't have a lot to go off of, and so God allowed him to do two tests. But I think if he had pushed it, it wouldn't have gone well for Gideon. Jesus here knows the Father, even though in this state we don't know how much of him knows what. And so there would have been inner turmoil. But he knows he needs to wait for God to have him move. So 
No, he's not going to do it. So the devil left him. And although it doesn't say so in Luke and Matthew, it says, and God then sent his angels down to minister unto him. And again, that wee Patrick in the Bible classes, I've been going, well, why do they need to be a minister to him? You know, they're preaching to him. That's what I thought ministers did. No, then I was told minister means servant and all kinds of questions popped into my head. I might not have been the easiest child to have in Bible school. But then again, I imagine I gave them many good stories. Walking out of the wilderness, Jesus goes to work. The Bible says he went to work in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread everywhere along the countryside, as it would. But then, then he goes to church, synagogue. The word synagogue is the word congregation, is the word those called out. So he goes to his church, which is the, the, the synagogue, the congregation, where he was from in Nazareth. Now, here's where you need to know something. There was a rotation in synagogues. Every male, I don't know about females, and so I'm going to have to, sorry. Uh, the, re the records indicate that they worship separately, but I'm not even sure of that. This is what I do know. When the men gathered Every man had a turn reading scripture, uh, it, assuming they were literate. And there's a real big fight about how many, what percentage were literate. And I don't have that kind of information. Jesus could evidently read and write. He wrote with the story of the adulterous woman and he reads here. So there's a rotation and everybody gets to read, but also the passage changes each time. Now, in the old churches in Scotland, in our, our old tribe, there would be two pulpits. One had a Bible open to the Old Testament, one to the New. And every week, there was a reading from the Old and from the New. And through the year, you would go through the Bible. Uh, and uh, there are all kinds of lectionary readings that people follow to this very day that do the same. So Jesus walks in. And it just happens, put quotation marks around there, just happens to be his turn to read, and it just happens that they're at this place in the scroll. And one of my favorite passages, one of the most dramatic passages, he went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. He went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll. And he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if you didn't get chills there, you need to go back to Luke 4 and look at that and see what Jesus just just claimed for himself. 
he didn't say, today, I will start teaching a message that will free the prisoners, that will, that will bring sight to the blind, that will let the oppressed go free, the good news. I'm, no, he didn't say that. He said, by his very presence on earth, it had already been done. It has been fulfilled today, right here, right now. We spend a lot of time hoping for a better world when we have it. We just need to uncover it and be a part of the better world. There were a series of commercials, and I never really went to the website to find out who was sponsoring these things, but it was basically say a better tomorrow starts with you today you know a better world starts with you yeah it, it um but the thing is the world's already amazing if the people of god will turn on the lights and not treat this as something which could happen but it's already happened let me tell you the good news you see that's our mission that's why we are the church. That's why we are the called out. We are called out of our comfort zones, of our wee little places of we like this way of worship and we like this way of doing. We've been called out of all of this to follow the steps of Jesus of Nazareth and go about doing good. Go into the desert, go into Nazareth, go to bring good news to the poor. In the book of Ezekiel, he says that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was their lack of hospitality and the way that they treated the stranger and the poor. Jude, by the way, brings that up as well. In scores of places in the Old Testament, we see God's mind firmly placed upon the poor. And we are here to tell them the good news. We had, um, when this you listen to this, it's going to be about a week and a half ago. We had a bunch of people over to our house to celebrate the anniversary of the day we were fired because what we thought had destroyed us had actually freed us to do things that were just beyond our imagining. And, and our dear friends have a great deal to do with that for they listened to the Spirit of God and they carried us as they still do. That said, this gathering that came at our house was just amazing some of them enjoy guitars so i took them upstairs to my guitar room and i said what i always say to people play anything you want as long as you want if you want to borrow one borrow one and it's always people look at you like really really and very few have ever taken me up on it but those who have fine i i mean it and by the way i'm aware now that i'm going to get texts and emails from friends of mine out there, they're gonna go, hey, send me one. Come to my house, we'll talk. The point is, what I have uh, as I bring it up, they're, they're just tools. They're not precious in life, they're just tools. Our house is just a tool to keep rain off of us and keep us warm and sheltered. The things in our house are just, they're there for a purpose. And so the good news to the poor is, the people of Christ will share. They're already sharing. Think of one gentle way. Oh my goodness, the sharing they do. Think of grace works. 
think of the bread shed that we had a video from a few weeks ago. Think of these works that are going on, but it's not just those works. It's also people like you that open up your pockets or open up your phone and you send money to poor, you take care of each other and you donate things, not old worn out stuff. You, you donate good things. That's amazing because we're not waiting. We're here to tell them, tell the poor already good news. The people of God are loose on the earth. They want to help. They want to share. The people of God are here to free prisoners. People of God, and by the way, those prisoners, it can be in prison because um, the fact is a lot of folk are in prison because they couldn't afford the lawyers that other people can afford. And if you don't know that, well, we can discuss that sometime. And it's, it's heartbreaking. Other people are in different prisons. They're imprisoned by doubts, lies, addictions, sexual slavery, and more, so much more. But no longer must anyone stay in these prisons. You are already being given the power. Already, you already have the power. You already have the people that will rescue you, pull you out, and say, you don't have to do this now. Dr. William Bacchus, I don't know if he's still alive or not. He wrote several books back in the 80s. He um, was a Christian and a psychiatrist. And his whole point was, you need to learn how to choose and what consequences come from choices. For example, uh, he had a fellow that had um, an, an addiction to strip clubs of some sort. And so uh, one day the man came in to the counseling and he said, listen, I, you know, I failed. I was driving by and I just couldn't help myself. I went in. And Dr. Bacchus looked at him and said, was, was there not another road you could have taken where you didn't drive by? And then he walked him through all of the voluntary steps that had to be taken to slow the car, to turn the car, to park the car, to stop the car, to put the car in park, to open the door. And he started, because he's a medical doctor, psychiatrist are, started referring to the, the, um, the muscles that your will moves versus those that move on their own, like heart and lungs, you know, the, the respiration and your heartbeat. Some of these things are automatic, but all of these were choices. And he walked him through the dozens and dozens of choices the man made before he even got in the door. He said, all of those were opportunities to say no. And I'm here to tell you, you have the power to say no at every one of these steps. We are here to proclaim freedom for prisoners. You don't have to find your meaning, find your place, find your purpose, and find your joy in the things that are enslaving you. God has already come and given you a meaning, a purpose, and a place greater than any that you could have imagined, greater than any that you could have made up. We're here to tell those who have never heard, those that are blind to the light of God, that there is a God in heaven that loves them even when they're in their desert and they're hungry. 
Jesus understood the reality was that God still loved him and God would still care for him even though he was hungry and in a desert. He trusted God and the provision of God. There have been many modern individuals that have written about this. I think of Corey Ten Boom, uh, who believed in God in spite of Auschwitz-Dachau, the horrible Nazi prison, uh, prison camps, work camps, death camps. They chose to believe in God anyway. And look at the mark they make on this world. And to tell prisoners today, you can get these chains off of you. Already, look what you could do, what your testimony can do. There is a God, and he will not let you go. John 10, 28, God says, I will not let anyone snatch you out of my hand. Memorize that one. To set the oppressed free, yeah, matters of justice concern us. But we will not fall into the trap of handing our responsibility off to a political party, left or right, or handing our responsibility off by voting that other people take care of that. No, we as individuals must be involved in being just and in calling for justice and in acting justly wherever we find ourselves. For although we can feel more righteous if we carry signs and yell, or if we, we, we get out the vote for this candidate or that candidate, all we're really doing is removing our job to somebody else. <coughs> Instead, as Paul said, no good soldier gets himself entangled in the affairs of the world. You follow your orders to be a just person and bring justice to every situation that you come into contact with as much as you can with the power that lies within you. We proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Yes, the children's song was correct. Yes, Jesus loves you. The great theologian Karl Barth was once asked late in his amazing career what things he really knew, 100% for certain. What things do you know for certain? He thought for a bit and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. By the way, that became a standard part of his speeches from then on. Sometimes he would even have somebody cued to ask him that question because he just wanted to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Yes, Jesus loves you. He doesn't love you if you get better, if you worship right, if you win the argument about what happens in a building for an hour a week. No, he loves you now, just as you are. I always loved the song, Just As I Am. I just hated that all 42 verses had to be sung over and over again until somebody was baptized or repented of something. If you were never in a church that did that, it's hard to explain. But the words of that hymn are some of the most beautiful true words ever. Look them up. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. And now thy promise I believe. O Lamb of God, I come. So why do we build buildings and why do we, quote, go to church? I think it's fantastic. 
to have places where we can gather in community. I'm not anti-building. I bet it sounded like I was, but I'm, I'm really not. I'm anti-putting too much money into them. I'm anti-making them too gorgeous, you know, but I understand the, that I may not be the person that gets to make that call, and I'm okay with that. I believe that some people love the beauty and perhaps helps them in, enter a transcendent moment with their Lord. Who am I to judge them? So I'm not opposed to those things. I think it's fantastic to have any place we can gather in community. But we often take these blessings and we twist them in ways that Jesus was not willing to do. Take these stones and make bread. Well, sometimes what we do is we try to supply the food for the locals in a way to please them rather than pleasing us. It's a, it's a matter of, well, God isn't really providing for us right now, so we need to build this and do this. And if we do this, then God will provide. That's putting God to the test. Jesus says, don't do that. Or let's get rich and powerful people in our church and let's vote right and get the government on our side and then all the kingdoms of the earth will be ours. No, that's not what we do. Instead, we go find the poor soul that Jesus would have found that all the churches of his day had missed because they're precious. Oh, the rich people are precious too. The problem is they probably think they are pretty well suited and sorted and equipped. They may not know they need God. So they may not be listening to us. So just go where you go. Serve where you are. And don't worry about the kingdoms of this world. They already belong to God. The devil just doesn't know it yet. And then I'm uncomfortable. When I hear people pray, Lord, we want a healing for such and such, or we want this for such, and we claim this promise in the name of Jesus, we claim, um, you really going to shove an IOU in God's face? I know that's not what you intend to do. I know you're probably trying to show your faith in him. Just like Jesus would have been showing his faith in God's provision if he jumped off the top of the temple. And there would have been people that saw that and went, oh my goodness, I now believe. But Jesus said, don't take that path. Don't put God to the test. We're under the test, not him. Let's just be faithful where we, were, where we are. Uh, and you know, I really do get it. I do. I can remember, uh, and I'll close here fairly soon. I don't remember when I started, so it's probably been a bit long. And Dave's not here to show me a clock. I can remember being in the classroom and the lecturers were ridiculing the idea of God. Anybody that would believe in God. Anybody, especially that's a Christian. And in my heart and mind, I'm just begging for God. Just show up for five seconds. You don't even have to say anything. Just big giant hand, flick. There goes a professor. Or just walk through. You know, somehow... And God chooses not to work that way. Instead, he puts little pimply-faced teenagers in that classroom, not to debate the professor, but to love the professor and love the people around and to look around and say, who needs a blessing? Who needs my help today? Who needs to know the good news is already here? It's already happened. It happened in Nazareth when Jesus read 
from the scroll. As long as we're here, our Safe Harbor Church does not exist for our needs. It does not exist for our desires. Instead, Luke 4, 18 and 19. This is why we're here. The Spirit of the Lord, I'm going to change the pronouns, is upon us because he has anointed us to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent us to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Nothing more, nothing less. So help us God.